This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. On, on behalf of the Academic Senate, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Chancellor Yang, members of our campus community, friends of the university, to the 61st Annual Faculty Research Lecture presented by Professor Joseph Incandela. Chancellor Yang will make the introduction for this year's recipient, Professor Joseph Incandela, Professor of Physics and Interim Vice Chancellor for Research. But before that, I'd like to say some words about the Faculty Research Lecture. Annually, the Academic Senate, through its Faculty Research Lecture Committee, and based on nominations made to that committee, selects a colleague who embodies the essence of faculty at this great research university. Being selected as faculty research lecturer is the highest honor the Academic Senate can bestow on its members. Looking over the list of the last 60 recipients of this most prestigious campus award, it reads like a who's who of leading university researchers. I'm pleased to see that a number of past recipients are here today to honor Joe. Joe, being named faculty research lecturer consists of six important honors. First, your picture appears all over campus, in newspapers, in newspapers, but not in post offices, if you know what that means. You're given the opportunity to present your research to the UCSB community and friends of the university. You're awarded a medallion. You receive an honorarium. And fifth, you get to serve on next year's Academic Senate Faculty Research Lecture Committee. And finally, the last honor, you get to serve as chair of that committee. Again, on behalf of the Academic Senate, I congratulate you. Chancellor will make Good afternoon, good afternoon. And, uh, um, on behalf of UC Santa Barbara, I'm just absolutely honored and delighted to introduce our esteemed colleague, Professor of Physics, Joe Incandela. This is my introduction PowerPoint. If you just see that, I don't actually have to say anything. Um, as you know, the Faculty Research Lecture Award is our highest campus honor bestowed by our very own colleagues. Peer recognition is the most valuable recognition. This award recognizes extraordinary scholarly distinction, high impact achievement, and international recognition in one's field. It is no wonder that Joe has been selected for this honor. You know, we have so many past winners here. Could I have the honor to ask you to just stand for 10 seconds to recognize you? <clears throat> Yeah, of course, among one of our research lecturers is Professor Herbert Cromer, who even won that prize from uh, Stockholm in the year 2000. <laughs> and Professor Incandela is respected and supported by his peers, not only because of his demonstrated expertise, but also because of his integrity, his passion, and his vision. His world-renowned breakthroughs research in the field of particle physics has unveiled a greater understanding of our origin and continues to shed new light on the mysteries 
of our universe. In July 2012, as the leader of the CMS experiment at CERN's Large Hadron Collider, an experiment involving more than 3,000 scientists from 39 countries, he announced the discovery of the long-sought Higgs boson, or we call it the God particle. So that's why I still remember that was on July 4th when I saw the New York Times and we saw that uh, thumbs up, that wonderful picture. Uh, Joe was the very first U.S. spokesperson for an experiment at a Large Hadron Collider, a testament to the respect and esteem he has earned from his peers around the world. His two decades of work at CERN, one of the world's largest and the most respected centers for scientific research, continues today. Here at the UC Santa Barbara, Professor Incandela has been a member of our faculty since year 2000. After spending about a decade at Fermi National Accelerated Laboratory, in 2013, he was appointed as the inaugural Joe and Pat Izerdiaga Chair in Experimental Science. Uh, and earlier this year, he graciously agreed to serve as our interim Vice Chancellor for Research. Uh, but since we are talking about Joe and Pat Izerdiaga Chair, and we are very honored that Pat is with us today. So Pat, may we, may we recognize you right here. You know, Pat, you, um, Joe and I all have the world respect for you. We are, we are so sorry that, um, that uh, Joe is not going to be with us today, but I'm sure he'll be very pleased. And we, his legacy, his support of our campus, his love uh, of our physics department, our physics and science, just in, in its interest of humanity, uh, just 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 such a legacy to our campus. We'll, we'll, we'll remember and honor him forever. His impact is so rich. His consequences to this campus is immeasurable. Thank you. And here at UC Santa Barbara, also, I might just at this point recognize Helen. Can we... We, uh, for your support. <laughs> and of course, Joe, your entire family are here. So we want to recognize all of you. <laughs> and Joe is a member of the prestigious National Academy of Science, a fellow of the American Physical Society, and an American Association for the Advancement of Science, and a recipient of the 2013 Special Fundamental Physics Prize. Professor Incandela's commitment to advancing the frontier of science is an inspiration to us all. And I know we have all been looking forward to this very special opportunity to hear him talking about his exciting research. First, let me take this opportunity to say to Joe, thank you for all of your contributions to UC Santa Barbara. Thank you, Joe. And we are proud uh, to be your colleague. And now, everyone, won't you please join me in Given a warm welcome to our number 61, 61st annual faculty research lecturer, Professor Joe Incandela.
really nice. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for those wonderful words. <clears throat> it's really great to be here, and it's a tremendous honor to receive this uh, recognition. Um, well, hopefully you'll agree that it was worthwhile still at the end of my talk, but uh, <laughs> that I'm the right person. But um, let me see if I can get my talk back up. Um, there it is. Okay, so I just wanted to mention before I start that the work we do is funded by the uh, U.S. Department of Energy. We owe them a lot. And the steadfast support of the university, which has been very substantial, and friends of the university, and I mentioned Pat and Joe. And I dedicate this talk to two great Joes, my dad and uh, Joe Izerdiaga. Uh, there are lots of great Joes in the world. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so... I titled this talk, In Search of the Genetic Code of the Universe, of our universe, which is, um, you could say, is a bit of a um, highfalutin talk uh, title. But I just want to mention that um, it's maybe more modest than you think. Once um, I met up with one of Joel Polchinski's graduate students years ago, and I asked her, um, are you excited about the results that will be coming out of the LHC? And she said, uh, no. And I said, really? You're not interested? She said, no. I said, why is that? She said, well, it only pertains to this universe. <laughs> and so I think this is really a modest talk because I'm only talking about this universe. You see. Okay. <clears throat> so I hope this is very accessible to you, and I'll quiz you at the end anyway, so be careful. So particle physics basically probes smaller and smaller distance scales. And you can see here, you know, there's us, then there are atoms. An atom is a billionth of an inch, roughly speaking. The nucleus of an atom is about one ten thousandth the size of the atom. A quark, which is a particle within a neutron or proton, is about one ten thousandth the size of the nucleus. The LHC, which I'm going to tell you about, is now probing down to distance scales of 10 to the minus 20 meters, which I learned is actually has a name. It's called zeptometers, 10 zeptometers. To give you some idea of what this scale is, this size is to an atom what an atom is to a human. So it's very, very small. You might call it the nano-nanoscale, okay. <laughs> now, to do that, we go to very high energies. Higher energies allows you to probe smaller and smaller scales. So here I show you different energy scales. The energy unit we use is the electron volt. Motion of an air atom is a fraction of an electron volt or EV. Chemical reactions are a few EV. Uh, nuclear reactions are a few million EV. The energy equivalent of the proton mass is a billion EV. And the protons in LHC beams now are at 6.5 TeV, which is a trillion electron volts. So we're going to very, very high energy in order to probe very small scales and look for new things. I'm going to tell you what we do. Now, in the process of probing deeper and deeper, and looking at many, many uh, discovery of many, many subatomic particles, particles and many advances in theoretical physics, we have put together a model of what we think the subatomic world is, and we call that the st uh, standard model of particle physics. And if you like, 
we have associated with that something of an, a periodic table of fundamental particles. And you see them here. There's actually a fairly small number. It's a fairly simple picture, even compared to the periodic table of elements. There are three generations of uh, quarks and leptons, and there are force carriers. And in fact, this entire thing is described also by one, one simple equation. <laughs> um, these particles are fermions. They have half, a half unit of intrinsic angular momentum, or what we call spin. And they're named after Enrico Fermi, who's shown here. I like to show this picture because this equation's wrong. <laughs> and I'm sure it wasn't Fermi's fault, but if you ever get a photo op at a blackboard, check. <laughs> and these are bosons, which are whole integer units of spin. And they're named after Sachendra and Nath Bose, who uh, wrote to Einstein about them. And remarkably, Einstein read the letter and got it published. So here's another look at the standard model uh, on a, a mass scale. And you can see this is a log scale. Now, these are all the particles uh, that you need to make up everything we see in the, in the universe. Okay? But the others turn out to be incredibly important to how the universe functions all the same. And to some extent, that's the crux of what we do. We're trying to find these really fundamental particles because they actually determine how everything came about to be the way it is in the universe at some level, even though they may not exist in today's universe, and you only see these. There's a lot we don't know. Um, for example, the top quark, which is the heaviest particle, is equal to 344,000 electrons, and we have no idea why this is the case. So we have a lot of work left to do. And up until recently, there was one missing piece, which was the Higgs, which had been proposed 50 years ago, and it took almost 50 years to find. And the Higgs is very important. Uh, we realize now, we have shown now that it does exist, and it means that the entire universe is not empty. Space is not empty. If you took everything out that you can see, it's actually not empty. There is a field that permeates the entire uh, universe, and the particles would be completely massless and move at the speed of light if it wasn't for the fact that that field is there. Some of them interact with that field, and they kind of get glommed up and slow down, if you like. And that makes them effectively massive, and that's how that works. So the Higgs field answers the question of where mass comes from, which is a pretty profound question to be able to answer, I think. <clears throat> OK. So it was found at the LHC by converting energy into matter, E equals mc squared. And this shows the layout of the LHC complex. There's a small accelerator that accelerates protons to a certain energy and then injects them to a bigger one, where they're accelerated to higher energies, and finally they're put into the LHC. And you can see it's an enormous machine. It effectively takes us back to about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, when the temperature of the universe was, if I've calculated this correctly, which I may not have, 80 million billion degrees. We don't usually talk in degrees, so I'm not sure if that's completely correct. But I think it's about right. And it took a long time. The first studies for the LHC were in 1984. The first collisions were 25 years later. And it took a lot of work to get there. This is what it looks inside. It looks like inside, there's a tunnel that's about 10 meters in diameter. 
So you just multiply this, uh, repeat it for 16.5 miles, and you have the machine. It's the largest machine, I think, ever built. And it works incredibly well. They're burying us in data, which is a good thing. And I like to say it's like Swiss chocolate. Now you're all completely confused, I hope. <clears throat> so the LAC, if you look at the magnets, the magnets hold the, the protons on track, on a circular track. They keep them curving around. It's like the banks in a racetrack. The magnets hold about 11 gigajoules of stored energy, which is enough energy to melt 12 tons of copper. So that's a lot of energy. And it's also the kinetic energy of an Airbus A380 at 700 kilometers per hour. You could ask how much energy is actually stored just in the beams themselves. It turns out to be 350 megajoules, which is uh, 23 kilograms of TNT, or 15 kilograms of chocolate. <laughs> so you probably didn't know chocolate had more calories than TNT. Okay, inside the LHC, the air pressure inside the two 16-mile-long vacuum pipes is actually lower than on the moon, and the magnets are cooled by 100 metric tons of superfluid helium so that they're colder than outer space, and it's the largest cryogenic system in the world. And that's the main source of power for the system. Once you get the magnets running, they're super currents. There's no additional energy needed, but you do have to keep them cold. Okay, let me tell you about the experiments. There, Here's the ring, shown again, an outline of the ring, and here you can see the Geneva airport, so you get an idea of how big it is. Oops, that's what, that's what it would be like if it was here. Okay, I positioned it so it goes through my office and my house. <laughs> <coughs> so depending on how... I feel that day. Okay, never mind. And there are two big experiments, CMS, which uh, UCSB is involved in, and ATLAS. And these are the two main uh, experiments, the flagship experiments. They're sort of multi-purpose experiments. You always need two experiments, partly because one may fail, frankly. We, they're very hard to put together. But more importantly, if you find something, it's so difficult to do some of this, it's important to have another experiment working independently to co corroborate that. There are two other experiments, uh, LHCB and ALICE, which are dedicated to very specific kinds of research, and I'm not going to talk about those now because I don't have time. But what happens is that we collide protons in each detector with energies that are great enough to produce particles that are thousands of times the proton uh, mass. So here is the ATLAS experiment. I'll start with our competition. It's a friendly competition, though. And this is a, sch a schematic of the detector. It is uh, 7,000 metric tons, which I use an interesting unit of weight for. It's one Eiffel Tower in weight. Um, the length is a bit over half of a football field, and it's about six stories tall. These are people, to give you an idea of how big it is. There are over 2,000 miles of cables, and um, the size and mass are what you need to measure the momentum and energy of very high energy particles. We have magnetic fields. The particles' trajectories are curved in the magnetic fields. As you can imagine, if the particles are moving with very high momentum, it's quite hard to curve their trajectories. So you can either increase the strength of the magnetic field or measure it over a very large distance. So that tells you the large scale, why they have to be so big. We're looking for very small changes in curvature. And then, once we've measured the particles' trajectories, we try to stop them, forcing them to shed their energy, much of it in the form of light, 
that we can detect and get an energy measurement from. And that determines why there's so much mass, because these particles are so energetic, they're quite hard to stop. You need a lot of material to do that. This is the Atlas Cavern in 2003. This is 300 feet underground. And this shows them installing the outermost magnetic system of set of toroids. And I like to show this just because, well, it's fun. And then it gives you an idea of the scale of this thing. So here's a person to set the scale. So Atlas has about 38 countries, 175 or 177 institutions, and 3,000 authors. Now, inside Atlas, um, essentially every cubic inch is filled with high-tech equipment and sensors and devices, which I don't have time to explain, but I wanted to show you some of the pretty pictures of some of this really nice technology. So now we get to talk about uh, our experiment, CMS. I am slightly biased, so you'll see more pictures. Interestingly, our cavern was located very near to the mountains where there's a lot of glacial, it's a glacial moraine, there's a lot of water running off. It was difficult to dig the shaft. It was so wet that they actually had to freeze it with liquid nitrogen and then excavate it bit by bit. So we got our cavern late, and to manage, we had to build the detector on the surface and then lower it in pieces, 25 stories. And the pieces were up to several million pounds each. And in some cases, we had only a few centimeters of clearance bringing them down. So it was a pretty, pretty tricky thing. We had to rent the biggest crane in Europe. This is the biggest piece that was lowered. It's uh, 4.4 million pounds. And uh, it's so heavy because it has the world's largest superconducting magnet. That's what this big cylinder is. Well, that's not, yeah, that's basically why it's so heavy. It's not the heaviest part. These big orange blocks you see there are iron to capture the return field from that magnet, and that also determines the mass. I wanted to mention we're good, uh, good people. We recycle. These are artillery shells from the northern fleet of the Russian World War II Navy, I think. And they were melted down. Here's a cheerful guy. <laughs> and turned into our hadron calorimeter, the thing that measures uh, hadronic energy, energy of particles that contain quarks. Now, I like to show this, not because this is so special, this particular piece, but um, to help set the scale for you. This is um, the last piece we put in in around 2009. You see it's a pretty big piece of, of equipment, but if you step back, those are those guys. So you get a feel for how big the experiments really are. And again, it's because of the high energy particles that we have to measure. So here's CMS with the tracking system, particle tracking system being installed. UCSB was a big player in that. Its total weight is two Eiffel Towers. And it's smaller than Atlas by two stories, and it's shorter by about a third. And the reason for that, again, is because we have this really powerful magnet. So the particles will bend, their tracks will bend in a shorter distance. So we don't need to be, build such a big detector. The C stands for compact. You can tell it's a very small detector. Okay. And we have now 45 countries, 200 institutions, about 2,200 authors. Um, both experiments have uh, like 800 to 1,000 graduate students. And inside CMS, we also have some beautiful technology. Uh, these are semiconductor, planar semiconductor sensors that are used to detect particles as they pass through them with very high precision. These are lead tungstate crystals that detect photons and electrons. This is a 66 million channel pixelated 
device that also measures tracks. I wanted to mention that UCSB has a big, big role in CMS, not just me. Uh, we have a great group involved. There are four professors, Claudio Campagnari, Jeff Richmond, David Stewart. We have eight postdocs. We're looking for a ninth, if you're looking for a job. Uh, 14 grad students, excellent students that we get here and we're very happy with. We have engineers, um, IT and administrative support people, technicians, and many, many undergraduates have helped us. But I'd like to also specially thank all the faculty and staff in the physics department, in fact, across the entire university who have supported us. Because uh, even though we're very far from CERN, we've managed to have a big impact on the program, and it's because of the help of a lot of people here at the university. So I'd like to acknowledge that. Here you see one of our postdocs, Indara Suarez, with President uh, Janet Napolitano um, back in February, showing her around. And here are some pictures of our guys in, in action. We had a big role in the muon system. I mentioned that we had a big role in the particle tracker. We put our people in very comfortable working conditions, as you can see. Okay. So Newsweek came out with this on the cover. They said the biggest experiment ever, and in parentheses, and it's European, and I always get a kick out of this. I like to show it because they're completely wrong in both ways. This is CMS, and I showed you it's smaller than Atlas. <laughs> and then it says, and it's European, and everything here that you see was built at the University of California. So, <laughs> But they went out of business, didn't they, for a while, I think. Anyway. Okay, so this is a picture of the CMS detector before the end caps are put on. And I like to show this because you can see very clearly the cylindrical structure, and this gives me an opportunity to show you how these detectors work in, in very basic detail. And to do that, I'll use a cartoon, which I overlay here, and then I get rid of the detector altogether. So in this region here in the center, we, from the yellow and the, and the gray here, we have semiconductor wafers, many layers of semiconductor wafers, super lightweight, and the idea is that particles will pass through them and not be deflected. We don't want to deflect the particles. We just want to see them. They go through, leave a little bit of charge. We measure that position with incredible precision, actually, about a half of a thousandth of an inch, roughly, or maybe better in some cases. And from all the layers, we get dots. We connect the dots. We see their trajectory. We measure the curvature. From the curvature, we get the momentum. So it's a great way to measure the momentum. And whether they're curving one way or the other way, we can get the charge, whether it's positive or negative. So we get a lot of information. Then we're done with that. We throw all kinds of material in their way, lead, tungsten, brass. And we make them basically put on the brakes. They start interacting with lots of material, shedding lots of energy. And from that energy, we get light. And from the light, we can measure, basically uh, get a very good signal and calibrate it and understand the energy of the particles. That gives us another bit of information. These dotted lines show what happens when you have particles that don't have charge. Here's a K naught has no charge. Then it decayed to two particles that do have charge. Here you have a photon. Here you have a neutrino. The neutrinos we don't see at all, so we, we recognize them by an imbalance in momentum. Okay, momentum has to be conserved. It's not. Um, and then the interesting thing are the, one other interesting thing are the muons. The muons are like heavy electrons. They get through everything, and they are detected in muon detectors that are on the outside of the, the detector. So now you know how this thing works. Many layers, like an onion, each layer helps us to unravel how the, how, what particles there are. We collide beams, as I said. People have a lot of, I think, misunderstandings about how the LHC works. Some people thought that you set it all up and then you fired the beams one time. 
And that was the experiment. But actually, it's more like a casino. It runs all the time, every day. It's open continuously. Um, I guess a casino is not quite right. But. So you have two beams circulating in opposite directions. Each beam has about 2,300 bunches. Each bunch has about 100 billion protons. And every time they cross now inside of our experiments, about 30 to 50 pairs of protons will collide and produce debris. And sometimes it's very interesting. Now, this is the remarkable thing is that they cross, the bunches cross about 30 million times per second. Um, and we run about six to seven million seconds per year. So there's a lot of collisions that are scanned. Here is a, a very interesting event. Now, um, you can see these are these yellow marks show the tracks of particles. You see they have a lot of curvature. That means they have low energy. The magnetic field can really curve them a lot. So they're not terribly interesting. Oops, the red particles are more interesting here. And these are all muons. They go all the way out of the system to the outermost detectors. And this reconstructs very well to um, two Z particles, which then you can, each pair can be reconstructed to what are called Z particles, which then can be reconstructed to what looks like a Higgs boson. So this could be a, actually a Higgs boson decay. All right, so I wanted to tell you about it. There's 80 million channels of electronics total in the detector. Um, the detectors are kind of like giant, ultra-fast digital cameras. They take up to 30 million photos per second, so you have to have very fast response time of about 25 billionths of a second. The interesting collisions, however, are very rare. We only keep about 500 per second, and that means actually that after a very quick analysis, we throw away 99.998% of the collisions. We keep a very small fraction. One of the big problems we have is the fact that many interactions happen simultaneously and interesting ones are rare, meaning most of the ones that are interacting in every bunch crossing are not interesting, and they just produce noise, if you like, just debris. And you can see this is an actual event where every color corresponds to a different pair of protons interacting. So in 2010, we had the beam intensities were not very high, and this is kind of like what the background debris looked like if you looked edge on the detector. By 2011, it looked like that. In 2012, it looked like that. And now it looks like this. So we have 50 collisions in this event. And remarkably, the detectors have enough res resolving power to actually pull out the interesting things and more or less disregard everything that's not interesting. But it's a tremendous challenge. And in the future, we have to address that. And I'll come back to that. Um, there's a lot of data produced. This is the data transfers from CERN around the world. Uh, I wanted to mention that we had 29 petabytes of data by 2012. And this is a projection, oh, hold on. We have 400,000 processors in 50 countries that manage this data. Um, and then you can do data analysis really in your own institution on your own laptop, basically. But this shows the projection of where the data is going. This is a log plot. So by the end of the LHC's lifetime, we'll have 2,000 petabytes, which is a lot of data. All right, let me tell you a little bit about the discovery, and then I wanted to tell you more about uh, what we're doing nowadays. These are the most visible Higgs boson decays for a mass around 100 times the mass of the proton, which is where it was found. These two are the most important because we can reconstruct them completely. And so if we calculate a mass from these events and we display mass uh, you know, 
number of events versus mass in a plot, you'll see a bump. It's like a mass spectrum peak that we're looking for. This is a diphoton event that, where the two photons, shown here and here, there's no track facing them, so we know it's not charged particles. There's lots of electromagnetic energy. Um, this, is a, this is a candidate for a Higgs decay, and we have lots of them. And in fact, if we do this distribution of them as a function of the reconstructed mass, we have a very large background, and then we see a little bump, okay, at about 125 billion electron volts. So what's in the bump? Well, it's a few hundred extra events with two photons that reconstruct to a mass near 125. It took how many collisions to find these? It took 10 to the 15th, actually. So it shows you how rare uh, these events are. Atlasol, exactly the same thing. This is, I'm showing what was shown on July 4th. This is a different kind of event, actually one like I showed before, where you have two Zs, and in this case, one decays to a pair of electrons, and one decays to a pair of muons. We reconstruct the whole thing, we look at the mass, and this is what we saw in Atlas. Now this is a bit more complicated. The red distribution shows what you would expect if there was only standard model particles without the Higgs, and the data are the black dots. This green bump would be what you'd expect. You'd expect data points up here if there was a Higgs at 360. The gray, you'd expect data points up here if there was a Higgs at 190. And the blue, where there actually is a data point, is where you'd expect, what you'd expect to see if there was a Higgs at 125. And in CMS, we did a search as well, and zooming in on a smaller scale, you can see a little bit more clearly that we also saw this excess at 125, which is exactly where we saw it for the uh, photons, okay? So believe it or not, this is enough to claim a discovery. Uh, <laughs> it's actually five standard deviations. Now you see why we go to five standard deviations and not three. Um, so we had this historic uh, presentation live at CERN and rebroadcast to Melbourne where physicists with gray beards were cheering like they were at a hockey game. <laughs> it was very exciting. Um, Henry mentioned that, uh, well, I presented for CMS. I, I wanted to say that um, I thought I was presenting just to science. I didn't expect it to be very much in the kind of popular culture. It hit the news pretty big, much to my surprise. And as Henry said, showed, it appeared in many places. I thought I would show you the strangest place my image appeared, uh, if I can get it there. You have no control over these things. <laughs> it's just unfortunate, but anyway. I wanted to show you that it didn't happen overnight. This is showing how the data filled in. And if you look at the dates, these are days clicking by, months clicking by. And what you're seeing here is the blue distribution shows what we'd expect without the Higgs. The red shows you what you'd expect to see if there was a Higgs at 125. And what's kind of fun is the data piles in. You project more and more data, right? And you see the data happily just chased that peak. It was exactly what we expected. And here you see um, Atlas looking for Higgs to WW, and the red is what you'd expect from the Higgs. And you see you need that on top of all the backgrounds just to see it. So we really think we found this thing, actually. Okay. One other important thing is that the Higgs, as I said, 
the field, the Higgs field, the Higgs itself interacts with particles, and the more it interacts with them, the heavier they become. So you would expect, in fact, that the coupling of Higgs to particles should increase as their mass increases. There should be kind of a linear relationship. And from a very uh, a fit to all of our data, that's what we see. The heavier particles have a stronger coupling, stronger connection. It meets all expectations. So um, when we first announced the discovery, we weren't sure exactly what it was. We were being very cautious. We said it was Higgs-like. We didn't want to say it was like uh, for sure a Higgs boson. And then in March, by March of the following year, the press was really nagging us, and we decided we better tell them it's the Higgs or they'll never leave us alone. So we put out a press release, and I went on record as saying, I think this is a Higgs. And so, but it turned out to be an interesting day to do it. The very same day, this happened. Do uh, you remember they, <laughs> they elected a pope? And then the next day we saw this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, one of the more interesting aspects of science nowadays is the public, um, public side. Okay, but we were very happy it, it led to the Nobel Prize in Physics that year. Uh, we did not get it as experimentalists. There's just too many of us. They couldn't figure out who to give it to. They gave it to the two guys who were still alive that were involved with coming up with the idea that was Francois Angler and Peter Higgs, but they pointed out in the statement that, of course, they did it because we found it, which made us very happy. We celebrated. Okay, so what next? That was the Higgs discovery. Well, I have to teach you a little bit of quantum field theory um, to go on, quantum mechanics. There are these very fundamental connections among elementary particles. My colleagues will probably laugh at me later, but please, I'm going to do the best I can to teach quantum mechanics in one slide. <laughs> so there's very, very deep connections. For instance, it turns out the mass of the W boson, the W particle carries the weak nuclear force. Its mass turns out to depend a lot on the mass of the top quark and of the Higgs boson, okay? As I said before, we need to look even at the particles we don't see all the time because they affect other particles we do see. And the reason for that is that you have things like this. You can have the W tootling along and suddenly turn into a top and a bottom quark and then go back and become a W again, okay? This is a Feynman diagram showing that transformation. Or you can have a W radiate a Higgs boson and then reabsorb it. I'm not making this stuff up, I'm really not. And it turns out that this is really true and that the identity of a particle is really not separable from what it can become or what it can decay into, okay? So keep that in mind. And if you're worried that you don't understand it, I thought I'd bring up this quote from Feynman I, I always liked. He said, there was a time when the newspaper said that only 12 men understood the theory of relativity. This is Richard Feynman, the famous US physicist, theorist. There might have been, he says, I don't believe there ever was such a time. There might have been a time when only one man did because he was the only guy who caught on before he wrote his paper. But after people read the paper, a lot of people understood the theory of relativity in one way or another, certainly more than 12. On the other hand, I, can, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. <laughs> so, it's very hard to understand quantum mechanics. It does not jive with our reality at all. And that was what I was showing you, this relationship between what particles are and what they can become and how you have to take this into account when you calculate their properties is one aspect of that. So that allows me now to tell you a problem we have, at least theoretically, 
with the Higgs mass itself. So when you go to calculate the Higgs mass, you have to include the effects of the standard modern particles, just like I, I mentioned you have to do for the W mass. Whereas for the W mass, you go from being off by 5% to being correct by one part in 100,000. When you do it for the Higgs mass, it turns out you get a really big, big correction. And you're off by a factor of 10 to the 17th, which is really pretty bad, even in astronomy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But that's, that's a real problem. And this turns out to be either a theoretical or a philosophical problem. So you need something to balance the effects of the standard model particles to get rid of this. Or the universe is impossibly fine-tuned. By that, what I mean is that it turns out you can, you can fine-tune all the parameters of the standard model, all the constants that we know in this model, and get everything to just cancel out perfectly. But you have to actually fine-tune them to 35 decimal places. So this is what I mean by fine-tuning. You have these numbers that have to cancel across 35 decimal places to get the right answer. And we don't have any examples of this kind of fine-tuning in nature. So we think it's probably not correct. There is another possibility, but I won't go into it. OK, so one solution okay, to this problem of the standard model particles giving too much of a correction is to bring in other particles, one particle for every standard model particle, whose correction is the same size but opposite sign. So they cancel. And to do that, you need, basically, um, new partner particles. And how do you get these? Well, there's a very basic symmetry that has been proposed that we like. You take all the standard model particles, and you make new particles to match up with them, basically via a kind of reflection in a mirror where the mirror is slightly distorted. You get all the same particles, but the spin of the particles changes. So bosons have partners that are fermions, and fermions have partners that are bosons. And you pick up a few extras, a few new particles. Instead of one Higgs, you now have five. This is two, two different charges. And this is called supersymmetry. One of the great benefits of supersymmetry is it turns out that all the forces as you go to higher and higher energy come close to intersecting but don't without supersymmetry, and they do with supersymmetry at about 10 to the 16 GeV. And we like this as a kind of remarkable simplification that we find attractive. It's been a very good simplification, and symmetry have been very strong guides for physics basically for centuries. Supersymmetry, most models of supersymmetry predict that there's a Higgs boson with mass less than 130, and we found it at 125. And it provides clues to the dark side of the universe. So I have to tell you a bit about the dark side of the universe. There's this cosmological connection um, that's been around for a long time. And I can tell you one of the manifestations is the velocities of stars and galaxies. As you move away from the center of the galaxy where most of the matter is concentrated, you'd expect the gravitational force to be weaker and weaker and the particles that were, I mean, that the stars which are rotating around the center of the galaxy to be lagging more and more. So you'd expect the velocity curve to rise maybe where it's massive and then drop off. But these were measured in actually many, many galaxies by Vera Rubin in the 70s, and it was found that 
the velocity curve actually rises, which is really surprising. It's as if there's something, the universe, I mean, the galaxy is embedded in some sort of heavy material that we can't see that's kind of pulling the stars along with it, okay? And um, we, because we can't see it, it was dubbed dark matter. Okay, so I have to tell you a little bit about the dark side. We now know um, that 5% of the universe is ordinary matter, standard model material. 28% is dark matter. We don't know exactly what that is, but supersymmetry has predictions for dark matter. And it, in fact, predicts particles that would have the right amount of, uh, that have the right density in the current universe. So it's a very interesting coincidence. The remainder is dark energy. I like to say, uh, we're not really sure what this is. Uh, it'll probably be taxed someday. <laughs> Department of Dark Energy, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, at this point, I want to mention that UCSB were very strongly involved in the supersymmetry search, which is the next obvious thing to do, or if you like, the dark matter search, because they're related in the way I mentioned. All four of our experimental faculty have groups looking, and I think we could safely say that we're one of the leading uh, efforts worldwide on searching for supersymmetry of any institution. There's also a very strong high-energy theory group, uh, and I list everyone here, and they give us lots of ideas. Uh, I won't mention who, but one of them came up with the idea of black holes being produced at the LHC. Remember that? That's that scare? It began here. <laughs> and it's a great idea. We're still looking for them. Um, but we haven't seen them. Um, we don't see any SUSY yet either. But we've only looked at a tiny fraction of the LEC data. Okay? And I can show you some of the... This is a technical plot. We think that the top quark is very important, and its partner, shown here, is the top, um, what we call squark, or supersymmetric top quark. And we look for it to decay to a top quark and this particle, which is actually dark matter. Okay? And we don't see it. And then if we look in the mass plane of these two, we can actually exclude, under certain circumstances, everything under these curves. And, and I just want to point this out, because UCSB has had a big impact on this kind of search. And our results are shown here and in many, many other analyses. OK. But maybe not. OK? The absence of any SUSY so far has motivated many alternative models. These are characterized by lots of new particles, like supersymmetry, or new spatial dimensions, actually typically, and I just list a bunch of them here. I won't go into them. And I just want to mention, though, that if you don't know exactly what you're looking for, a Large Hadron Collider is a very good tool. So uh, Atlas and CMS have completed hundreds of searches, and other than the haze, we haven't found anything so far. But we're still looking, and we're at a higher energy. OK, a couple last topics. I hope you'll be patient and hang around for a few more minutes. I have some good jokes at the end. <laughs> so the LHC will run for another 20 years. The beam intensities will create up to 200 proton-proton collisions, and that's what's shown in this picture. And the current detectors that we have actually can't handle this. So we have to replace them. New detectors, new electronics, new data handling, new analysis methods are all under development, and we are involved. Now, the goal. This is how many Higgs bosons each experiment had as of 2013. And this shows you how it would go up. And in 20 years, we hope to have hundreds of thousands. And this will allow us to understand the Higgs in extremely high, uh, really good detail. 
some cases, very, very high precision. Um, and that will help us understand if it has special connections to new physics. As I mentioned, the top and the Higgs are particularly interesting. Um, and it turns out that coupling the Higgs to the top and its partner are what creates the Higgs mechanism, which is this field that I told you about. So in some sense, the top is very special. Together with the Higgs, it tells us, it, it's the reason we're here, effectively. Uh, somebody carved a pumpkin of a very important top Higgs process. I figured it was Halloween, close to Halloween. I shouldn't mention that with the chancellor. He doesn't like to talk about it. <laughs> okay. One interesting thing about this top Higgs connection is that together they tell us about the stability of the universe. They tell us whether the universe is sitting, for instance, in a very deep, very you know, well-contained potential, we call it. It's, it's, it. The potential of the Higgs field, is it stable? Is it going to sit there very comfortably forever? Or is it very shallow and the universe could kind of slash out of it? The Higgs mechanism could go away. All of our electrons become massless. We just poof, disappear. And guess what? We're in between. So it turns out the universe is neither stable nor unstable quite as we know it. It's metastable. So it has a limited lifetime, perhaps. By the universe, I mean the universe as we know it. Of course, it's also the universe we could live in. So OK, it's the universe. Uh, all right, last, uh, I want to tell you about our current research in brief, my current research. This detector here is an NCAP calorimeter. Um, and it has to be replaced because it's going to see a huge amount of radiation if we keep it. We're expecting up to 10 to the 16 neutrons per square centimeter. Most things can't withstand that kind of uh, radiation. And the devices we have in there definitely can't withstand that. So I'm involved in, in replacing this with um, a, a calorimeter based on silicon sensors. Uh, we're going to basically replace 20,000 channels of electronics with 6 million channels and this has a lot of engineering channels. It's 6,000 square re feet, 6,000 square feet of semiconductor sensors. So imagine tiling your house in your neighbor's house with very expensive silicon sensors. There's 22,000 modules, 90,000 readout chips, and uh, we're, we're heavily involved here. This is a prototype of the module um, from UCSB, and the data rate will be about 40 billion bits per second for each of these readout chips. Black so it's quite some challenges. 40 terabytes of data per second will be produced by this thing. Um, but it has this unprecedented three-dimensional capability. You can actually see, not just see energy, but you can actually see the particles producing the energy, which has never been done before. Um, and that can help us figure out which inter interaction particles are coming from, and we can focus on the ones of interest. And this is how we're going to deal with 200 pairs colliding is to actually pick out the ones that make go to the interaction that we're interested in. There's also a 4D aspect of this thing. The timing resolution on these particles is about 10 trillionths of a second. Um, so even if you had two particles on top of each other, if they didn't happen at the same time, we can actually separate them. So that's quite fun. Um, but on top of that, uh, in my spare time, we decided to, to launch another experiment uh, at Stanford using this technology where we're going to look for light dark matter. It turns out in the very low mass range where most stable matter in our universe or visible universe exists, we haven't really got strong limits. And in fact, I wanted to mention that Harry Nelson here at UCSB is leading the LZ direct dark matter search. So we have a big contingent of people working on dark matter. We're hoping to figure out what it is. Okay, 
So in summary, and then I have one little, little thing I'm going to tell you about. Uh, a new boson has been found. This is 48 years after the idea was hatched, 20 years to design and build, three years to acquire the data. It was a generation of work by thousands of physicists, and all they got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> no, of course, that's not true. It was a giant leap for science and a breakthrough of the year in 2012. But now we need to understand what makes it possible and how it connects to dark matter. So last, last topic. What comes after the LHC? This is going to be very quick and fun, I hope. Well, at CERN, they're looking at another accelerator that actually leaves the valley and goes around the next mountain range. That's the future circular collider, they call it. Here's a picture of it. To study the Higgs, to study, look for new particles. This is an 80-kilometer version. This is the LHC. This is the 80-kilometer version, which is now being, basically, they're considering this 100-kilometer one instead. Um, in China, they're also considering such a ring. I call it the Great Ring of China. <laughs> it starts right next to the Great Wall. That's where the name came from. And it's in this province that I can't pronounce. And they're looking at a smaller version, too. Is Henry awake? Yes? What about here? Uh, <laughs> what do you say, Chancellor? Can we fit it? It's a pretty big machine. I don't know if these are going to get launched. They're very expensive. Um, beyond that, there's also the idea of colliding electrons and positrons on a linear track to very high energies. This allows you to do precision studies of the Higgs. This is being seriously considered in Japan with a lot of US uh, collaborators. CERN is considering one that could start small and then you keep adding linear pieces and just go to higher and higher energy. So this is Lake Lacrimon or Lake Geneva. And uh, what about in the USA? Okay, I just wanted to point out that the candidates seem to be supportive. <laughs> Hillary said, the discovery of dark matter is presently our greatest challenge as searches have so far failed to detect it, and we need to look everywhere possible. I will check my email servers <laughs> for any hints of dark matter hiding there. And Donald claims... He will make high-energy physics great again. <laughs> he will demand the discovery of particle physics beyond the standard model. And he will build the world's largest collider and make CERN pay for it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.